2: Uh, Good evening, everybody, those who are tuning in live and those who are uh, watching afterwards. I am Jacob Daniel, host of the Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy Podcast. Um, Tonight, I'm excited to have Angela McArdle on. Uh, Angela, how are you doing tonight?
3: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, So for those who are watching who... fellow members of the Libertarian Party and the Mises Caucus, you probably don't need too much of an introduction, but I feel like a lot of my audience might not be that familiar with you because not everyone who watches my show is heavily involved in the LP. So um, I wanted to start out with a little bit of just, you know, getting to know you a bit more and your background and how you came to be doing uh, the things you're doing today. So um, maybe start out with like where you come from and just a little bit about your upbringing and um You know, what what led you, especially also like from a Christian uh, uh, perspective, um, to uh, look into libertarianism and what what was that journey like? How did it uh, come about?
3: So I grew up in the church. My dad's a minister, technically a Southern Baptist minister. I I really don't think that that's so critical as to how he was ordained. Uh, He pastored a Christian Missionary Alliance church for a long time which we refer to as CMA. And I had kind of an interesting experience growing up, you know, I grew up in East Texas, my dad's a a pastor. But going to a CMA church, we learned a lot about government in other countries, just kind of accidentally, because we had missionaries coming in all the time. And like a big thing in missions, as most of you would know, who who are, you know, Christians and really involved in the church is that there's a lot of countries where you're not supposed to do that, a lot of communist countries and and other places where you don't send people to talk about the Bible or or anything. You know, it's not just Christianity. There's a lot of things you're not supposed to talk about. So I, you know, as like a seven, eight year old, was very like steeped in um, defiance to government because we would hear twice a year from missionaries and, and we had people in our home all the time about how they were getting their heads lopped off by warlords and locked in cages in China and Vietnam and just, you know, all kinds of horror stories. So it had a really profound impact on me as a child. And I have always been really distrustful of government because of all the stories that I've heard about oppression of, of Christians and missionaries in other countries.
2: Yeah. A uh, fellow pastor's child here too. And uh, now my dad actually was a missionary on top of that. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, uh, the story my dad likes to talk about the most, because he has, he's not full libertarian, but very libertarian-leaning, I think partly because of his experiences, kind of like what you're describing. One time they went to just go bring food and like clothing and supplies and stuff to, to a country in, in Africa. I forget exactly which one. But they were literally turned away because they were, um, the government, like the port authorities were like, you have to pay a bribe, basically, to be able to dock with their stuff. And the bribe was so expensive that it was cheaper for them to literally dump everything they had than to pay the bribe to bring the stuff in. So, like, just like, you know, your stories like that about how uh, a lot of the poorest places in the world are poor because of their governments, because of how oppressive they are. And then, of course, you find out that American politics and foreign policy has a lot to play into that as well, because a lot of the times, uh, we're the ones propping up these regimes um, yeah. in one degree or another. So, yeah. yeah, I can definitely relate to that as far as the upbringing and whatnot. Um, I think I remember from watching you in 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 podcasts in the pa- in the past say that, um, you know, like I, I remember I've heard you describe it before how you became a libertarian and then an anarchist. Um, what was like your like? I know when I became a libertarian and an anarchist. I then had to go back and try to reconcile it to my, my faith because I I was just like and you know, I like I took the red pill and then I was like, okay, but I've always been taught these certain things about the Bible, about Romans thirteen, you know, all that stuff, and I was like, is there a way to make sense of this? What was that process like for you as far as like, you know, reconciling your faith to the 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 political view that you came to?
3: Well, I think my biggest like red pill moment as a Christian, was probably when I was 12 and I heard about my dad's friend who escaped Pol Pot's killing fields. She got hit in the back of the head with an ax and thrown in a mass grave, you know, with a bunch of other dead bodies. And she crawled out and ran, you know, with a, with a major head trauma and was shot and still made it across the border. And that really, um, put into perspective, for me, what we're supposed to honor the most. Is it God's law or is it man's Mm. law? Um, Yeah, that it's just, you know, I was like 12 years old, sitting in a seminar, watching this video and this reenactment. And then she like walks out. My dad's like, oh, meet, you know, Intan and Ali, they survived killing fields. It's just like really mind blowing. That really had me um, questioning everything. Actually, you know, I think my first before that, my first like really hardcore um, thing was uh, I was in I was in elementary school during uh, Desert Storm. And we were supposed to have this like moment of silence and then say the Pledge of Allegiance. Wow everything was popping off in the Middle East. And I, I went home and it was just too serious and weird. And I understood we were at war, but, you know, I went home and I asked my parents about the Pledge of Allegiance. And, you know, they were like, oh, it's good. And I was like, but isn't it like praying to the flag? And my dad yeah. was like, <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like what have I done? And I was like, I don't think I'm supposed to do it because you told me not to like swear on the Bible or to swear to God, and I'm not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain. I can't do this. Uh, and and you know, like I had like this big argument as a seven seven year old during Desert Storm. So yeah, you
2: know it's what's funny is like it's sad that more Christians aren't known for this. The, the first time I encountered someone in school that didn't stand for the the pledge of allegiance or like the national anthem was it it was a a girl in my my grade who was an atheist her parents were atheists and they had objections to her doing the pledge because of the whole line like under god and all mm-hmm. that um but the way that like the rest of the class turned on her and like ostracized her socially because like oh you're weird you don't you don't do our creepy pledge to skycloth ritual so you're not one of us like the, the just from a young age how she was ostracized be- because of that is you know, it's something that still sticks out in my mind today, and it's sad that Christians aren't known for that because, like, to me, like, that fits in with what the Bible talks about, right? Like, we're supposed to be um, like sojourners in this world. Like, this isn't our true home. So, if anyone should be sticking out in a crowd, you would think that Christians should be, not, you know, not not the people who are literally, like, saying, I am of this world and nothing else. But, unfortunately, there's, uh, in America at least, uh, just a lot of heavy entanglement of Christian theology with this kind of like, you know, it's like this weird Western branding of Christianity that's very Americanized. That yep. um, uh, that when you go back and actually read the Bible and try to like, you know, interpret it through an actual like proper her- hermeneutic that relates to like the time it was written, doesn't really make sense at all. Um, yeah,
3: I completely agree. Like, you know, like the Romans 13 thing, it gets thrown in my face, you know, more than maybe any other verse will. Oh, my God. Like, Besides... I
2: seen, have you seen the new... Um, M- Michael Malice is on a podcast with uh, Michael Knowles of The Daily Wire. Yeah. And literally, like, as soon as they... Because, like, they're talking about Malice's book, and he had Tol- Tolstoy in there. And then so the minute religion gets brought up, Michael Knowles, yeah, but, you know, what, what about Romans 13? And I, I literally had, like, a, a full-body eye roll in the middle of work as I'm listening to this, because I'm just like, oh God, like, why? Why does everyone just like, you know, like reflexively go to this pass? And I get why, but it's just when you've answered it so many times, it just gets annoying. But yeah. what are your and- thoughts on, on, on that passage? Because that's, that's like the number one passage that gets cited. I have my own way of handling it, but I was interested to to hear kind of like what your your answer to that is.
3: So, there's, well, there's also, you know, there's Mark 12 through like. Sure, Or 13 through like 16 or 17 too about taxes. And is that like, are we talking about, you know, give to Caesar? Are we talking about morality or lawfulness? That's usually how I approach that. But, you know, with Romans 13, I think there's two major things that I point to. And one is just like kind of like an obnoxious technical argument about uh, translation. Not every theologian agrees that it was proper, that we are interpreting it properly or that we even agree on the translation. And, but that really goes out. The door when we're just talking with the average layperson, which brings up an important consideration, and I think this is something that we don't talk about enough, and we definitely talk about it in libertarian circles. And there's an analogies. How much are people expected to know about early church history and the historical context before we like allow them to start talking about the Bible? There's not a lot of education on this topic, even within Christian circles, and I think that's why the evangelical community goes so hardcore with this and why they try to clam, cram the pledge down our throats even at church services. Um, but aside from that, you know, I think that, well, Paul was a Roman citizen and he had a very different background than a lot of other apostles. And historically, like going into Romans, like he hadn't been really in in that church community before, and there was a lot of fighting going on. Which is another really interesting uh, analogy for for libertarians, you know, anarchists. Well, you know, anarchists, you guys have infighting too. We all we all fight. Yeah. Anybody who hates the government doesn't get There's along. There's
2: definitely with. a lot of parallels though between Christianity and libertarianism.
3: Yeah, and like, and and there are parallels between what was happening then culturally and what's happening right now. And I don't just mean like the fall of Rome. I mean like absolute like cult the cult of emperor worship and state worship. And I think that there were a lot of things that Paul was addressing regarding this cult of Caesar worship with the nationalism and the the pushback against nationalism and the division it was causing within the church between Jewish people and Roman citizens. And if we were to understand things within that context, it would start to make a lot more sense. I also think that it was, you know, it was pastoral and community-based, not necessarily paul preaching about how people should behave with regard to government for the next three millennia
2: yeah and i mean i always find it silly that people say romans 13 means to just you know blindly follow the state when Mm -hmm. i'm like you know paul wrote half the new testament like in jail and (laughs) the apostles died at the hand of the states because they refused to like so you know i think that the the simplest answer is that like he uses the word submit there and you and like um my friend craig Hargis on the bad robin project um who i have a lot of other disagreements with but he 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 likes to bring up the analogy of like rosa parks how like she disobeyed the law but she did submit to the punishment rather than like violently resist and and i think it's kind of like how we respond to the government is kind of in the same vein of like when Jesus says don't return evil for evil turn the other cheek etc now i'm i'm not a pacifist um but i do think that um we should be trying to mimic christ as much as we can and and christ didn't really like use uh violent means as a way to resist evil you know what i mean so i think as christians we should always be trying to find the most peaceful means we have available to us and sometimes um, I think very often actually nonviolent resistance, um, non uh forceful resistance is often the best path that we can have toward resisting evil. Um it doesn't always like work in the short term, but over the long term it tends to be, I think, what what generally works out in most instances. And I think when you look at Romans thirteen and in that sort of light, it also makes uh a bit more sense. Although the translation stuff you you bring up is also important too, and um I think a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is to translate Greek to, I mean, English, let alone Greek Absolutely. to anything else uh, without having all the cultural context and, uh, and all that. I mean, it's, you know, just the word, like, because, like, the, the subject of Romans 13, the word used is exousia, and exousia mm-hmm. is used a bunch of times in the New Testament, and mm-hmm. it has different meanings depending on the context. What I like to bring up is that the passages where exousia clearly means nations and states it's usually being the uh, exousia and those passages are referred to as like demonic powers. So it's like, if you want to, if you want to define exousia as state, okay, well they're demonic. And and isn't like when Jesus was in the desert and Satan said, if you bow to me, all the kingdoms of the world, which are mine to give will be yours. So to me, it's just, no matter which way you want to slice it, I like to go the direction of just saying governance doesn't require a state, right? Like I believe in the idea of law in rules like i'm an anarchist but i'm not a no rules anarchist i'm a i'm a no masters no rulers anarchist so you can have law you can have governance you just don't need this monopolistic entity called the state to do so um, especially when the state kind of violates the uh the purview of romans 13 because romans 13 says that the governing authorities are not a terror to good works it's like well The state is pretty much the opposite of that. So it's like no matter which way you go about it, I think you just run into a really hard wall trying to use Romans thirteen to justify any kind of statism.
3: And I think that most people read Romans thirteen in a vacuum without taking it into the context of all of the rest of Romans. I like to point to Romans two. You know, like he Apostle Paul is saying that people who are self-serving and don't obey the truth are going to be given over to like wrath and indignation and, and things like that. Um And it talks about the law and how, you know, people who obey the law will be justified, but he's not talking about man's law. They're talking about God's law. So, yeah. you know, then that comes that, first in the letter too.
2: Yeah. And the word exhusia, actually the most um cited use of the word exhusia is to define like, God's law and God's authority and like Mm -hmm. the the, like God's moral law. So yeah, I think that's that's all very good. And you know, there's other passages other than Romans 13, but I think they all kind of say about the same thing. um, You know, which is like to 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 submit to them. Um, But but it there is one passage where he says submit and obey, which I haven't looked into much yet, but I, I I got a feeling that's also probably a translation thing. I mean. There's just so many words in the Greek, like, and even in the Hebrew. Like, I know, like in in Hebrew, like for example, like they don't have a separate word for slave or for servant, which that right. causes a lot of confusion. Right. It's just we we have to, and I'm I'm not a biblical scholar. Like, I haven't gone to school for this. I do my best being a, uh, you know, amateur internet Googler to try to you know inform myself of this stuff. Um, but I, you know, I think that's better than just blindly listening to, uh what people say when it seems to be an open conflict with so many stories in the Bible, right? I mean, Moses didn't submit to the governing authorities, uh, Daniel three, but I named my podcast after, uh, Meshach, Radshach and Abednego certainly didn't submit to the governing authorities. Um, you know, the apostles didn't submit, uh, you know, it, there's just countless examples, I think. And, um, I like the way you put it too, which is like, you know, we have to be, um, we have to submit to God first and any time at the very least, anytime submitting to God comes in conflict with submitting to the state. We have a clear answer of which Mm -hmm. way that that conflict is supposed to go.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, another thing that Romans two says all the time is, or in at least one circumstance, it says that if like an uncircumcised man keeps the law, will his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And Mm it's like Paul is analogizing, you know, the the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law.
2: Right. And talking yeah. about
3: what's in your heart. And, you know, like based on that, I'd say like, what is he saying? You know, what's more important, keeping the letter of the law or the spirit of the law? I'm always going to go with the spirit of the law.
2: Absolutely. I mean, wasn't that what the Sermon on the Mount was all about? Like Jesus saying, like, listen, like, and, and people often say Jesus was contradicting the Old Testament. Like, no, I think he was, A, showing... Um, here's the consistency of it. Here's passages you guys are ignoring. But also, the law was never intended to be used as a, here's how evil I can be. It was was just a limit on human evil, but you should strive to be as good as you can be, and you should understand the spirit and the intent behind the law and not just use it as an excuse to just be as, you know, I'm going to go right up to the line because that's what God allows me to do. Like, if you do that you miss the entire point and that's what Jesus said about the Pharisees too was that like you wear the law on your robes and and all this but you don't have the law in your heart and yeah. and I, I think it's always you know infinitely more important to 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 try to write the law in our hearts and to and to model what Jesus did than it is to you know pedantically you know you know <laughs> go through the bible and find all the 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 passages that you can use to try to um rule it's kind of like their people use these passages to try to force you into their worldview and jesus said in it was one passage in mark i forget where he talks about the the gentiles how they they seek to to rule and lord over one another he says that shall not be the way it is among you and the word he used there was ark um archos which he was saying like the, the the gentiles try to be uh, archists to each other so mm-hmm. you know that's a pretty <laughs> i like using that passage i forget the exact it's mark something i think it's mark 9 or mark 11 but it's a pretty like hey jesus says don't be an anarchist so that leaves you with one other option <laughs> um so yeah i mean i think we've covered that pretty well um one criticism that i hear a lot from other christian libertarians and anarchists and then this will lead into i think we want to also mm-hmm. talk about the post-libertarian's mm-hmm. Um, I get this a lot. Like I brought up my friend, Craig Hargis, who is a fellow Christian anarchist podcaster. Um, but he takes the stance that a lot of Christian anarchists do. And I've been back and forth on this topic that if you're an anarchist, especially a Christian anarchist, you shouldn't be engaged in politics because, you know, various reasons. It's inconsistent. Jesus didn't engage in politics. Uh, you know, it it muddies the message, et cetera. Um, what what is your reasoning um, for for why you think that you can be a Christian, you can be a, a Christian and an anarchist, and then also, um, maybe like why you think it's not in conflict, why why you personally feel driven to work within the political realm, even while saying you know politics is is basically something that we're trying to I guess get rid of in a, get rid of. In, a in a sense. So uh, maybe maybe touch on that for a little bit.
3: It's we live in a time where it's. Nearly impossible to disentangle yourself from political action. Everything that we do is politicized. Entertainment is politicized. Diet is politicized. You can't purchase something without your tax dollars going towards something that you don't approve of. Even if you try to be a strict agorist, like you got to put gas in your car, Uh, you got to buy groceries. You can you can try to dodge taxes as much as you can. And it's just inescapable. You got to drive on government roads, you know. uh, And I think that it is reasonable to take a defensive posture with political action to try to stave off as much immoral tyranny as you can. So to me, politics are self-defense. And so I'm not interested in lording my my political opinions and behaviors over other people to coerce them. I'm just trying to get out from under it so that I can live my life. And that's that's pretty much my position.
2: Yeah. And I know like a lot of Christian anarchists tend to be pacifists, which I think that's part of the divide that that we have. Like I don't consider myself a pacifist. I think self-defense is acceptable. I don't think it's always the right move because I do think, Modeling the turn turn the other cheek thing is is useful in certain situations. I think that's more for less about like when someone's actually committing violence against you, and more like for matters of like you know like like a slap like to use the metaphor a slap in the cheek isn't going to kill you. So I mean if if somebody's harming you but it's in a way that you'll live and it's not going to severely impact the rest of your life or even more so like it's one thing to to turn the other cheek for yourself but then What if they're going after your neighbors and your family? Because the the problem I have with pacifism isn't even so much like, I don't really need to defend myself except maybe like, I don't want to die because I want to be able to be there for my wife and my kids. Um, But Mm -hmm. I'm more compelled actually to resist pacifism because I love my neighbor. Um, Now, I know Jesus says to love your enemy too, but like, okay, if loving my neighbor and loving my enemy come in conflict, I think I have to choose the side of the one who isn't initiating aggression. I think that makes sense. What do you think?
3: Yeah. I. We're also called to provide for our families and defend our families. I, right. You know, with, aside from Abraham's sacrifice, which, you know, God didn't end up having Abraham actually kill Isaac. I'm trying to think of a time in biblical history where God says, you know, let the state murder your kids. Right. And I can't... Th- Think of one, and we're not there yet. With well, are we? Christians would disagree <laughs> on that. I was going to say we're not there yet, but actually, we, we we do see a lot of state campaigns for abortion, and now we're That's seeing true. what people, uh, what a lot of people believe is is abuse in public schools, with with mass mandates for small children and and a lot of other things that you know.
2: You could I almost don't have, construe abortion, especially in the black community, as a genocide. Waged yeah. by the state. I mean, it's not that far of a stretch,
3: right? And e- even if you are, even if you're pro-choice because you're, oh, I don't know, I don't know if government should handle it, you know, because that's generally the, the. I guess that's the position that I take, where I'm like, oh, I would never do that, and I would tell people not to do that, but I'm not sure if technically we should make a law about it because this is very complex. It, yeah. Even from that position, when you see government really pushing it. And when you see certain politicians talking about how even partial birth abortion should be legalized, that's pretty gross.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I I definitely I definitely agree with you, like on the topic of abortion. Um, I'm very pro-life in a a moral sense, but Mm -hmm. I just don't trust the state to not make it worse. You know what I mean? And like I feel like the only way the state can like the market could ban abortion like it's a bad way to put it but the market in an anarchist society i think could could have torts and contracts and set up to make abortion effectively banned and i would trust that i don't trust the state to do it because it's going to end up in an invasion of rights that it, that's greater than what you're trying to save i think like you're gonna every miscarriage would be open to government investigation you know what i mean like yeah that you there... could lock pregnant women in prisons and doctors in prisons i just, like i don't know that seems like way too, uh, you know, edging on, you know, giving the government that much power to invade people's privacies and, 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 uh, invade their rights. that I'm just not comfortable with it.
3: Right. And there have been a few horror stories and, and I recognize, you know, that these are small stories and they get disproportionate media attention, but there have been a few stories about women getting investigated, you know, and having the cops knock on their door in more conservative States when they yeah. had a late term miscarriage. And, that's got to be really devastating for a woman to go through and then people are treating you like a murderer it it, you know not a good not a good thing
2: yep absolutely agree on that um yeah i just i always you know i definitely don't think political action is the only means to Mm -hmm. uh uh, fight for liberty and so when christian anarchists are like well don't put your faith in politics it's like well i i don't it's just a tool like you know and uh, to me, it's like, I want to utilize the best tools for the job. I think politics is well-suited for certain jobs. There's also some other jobs that it's not well-suited for, and maybe agorism is a better choice, or maybe just you know preaching it in your, you know, teaching your kids, raising your kids with the right values is an important part of it. Um, you can't centrally plan getting to a freer society, let alone an actually freed society, because it's like we don't live in, in Kapistan right now, like as much as we want to, so... Right. I can either say all or nothing and continue to let my neighbors and family be oppressed or I can try to do something. And even though politics is violence, politics is a lot less violent than actually like, hey, let's round up, you know, let's let's go do the big igloo option. You know what I mean? Like, that's So, I mean, you know, there is a point of government tyranny where I probably would advocate for for that. But we're not there yet. Um, You know, and and I want to, you know, war is ugly. Like you know, as a libertarian, like I'm very anti-war. War is deadly, even if you're fighting a, a quote-unquote just war. And I, like I guess technically that can exist, but it's still devastating. Innocent people are still going to die, so I would rather not have war as a solution if there is any other solution or means available on the table. I also hold up for the possibility that anarchism might be like as a like anarchism on any level, on any societal level, no matter how big or small might be something we can't achieve. So I don't want to, I call this the nirvana fallacy. It's like, I don't want to just like, if I can't have the world exactly the way I want it, then I'm just going to retreat from society. Now we don't want to merge with society, but I think you know what Jesus taught was to be in the world, not of it, but to be in it. We don't want to just uh, retreat out of society and just isolate ourselves from the world. We're supposed to be light and salt onto the world. So yes. that means we can't completely separate fr- from it. And I think this is kind of a good segue to uh the other subject we wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. which is uh the post libertarians and, and all them, because that's sort of the message, you know, one of the messages I think that they are pushing is sort of this like weird Christian retreatism where it's just like, you know, society has failed and what we need to do is just, you know, like, well, first you get rich. And then you go find some unoccupied area, and you mm. go build your little like Christian commune paradise or something, and you know just just leave society behind and go rebuild some kind of you know Christian liberty or Christian monarchist you know uh, utopia somewhere else. Is I mean I'm I'm being a little bit you know uh, flippant in my description of their arguments, but that's that's how it comes across to me. Um, you, you did have that debate on lines of liberty, which hasn't aired yet, so we can't talk too much about it, but you had that debate with Matt Erickson, um, talk a little bit about, you know, for those who, you know, haven't seen the debate yet, but, you know, what your general thoughts are on like the, the post libertarian, you know, movement and, you know, as it relates to the subjects (laughs) we're talking about.
3: Well, let's deconstruct it a little bit because it's sort of a, a very mixed up inherently contradictory argument sure. there's a lot of arguing for agorism and removing yourself from civilization i guess as much as you can like society but, but then there's also this this element of trying to get power political power social power wealth influence and, and you have to try to kind of parse it and figure out what they're really talking about so i mean we have talked a little bit about you know like the pitfalls of agorism you know, we're supposed to be the salt and light of the earth. And, and I think that with libertarianism, I think there's a lot of analogies with Christianity and that's, that's something they don't agree with me on. But I, I really think that they're there. And I think that our duty, we're obligated to go out and like spread the message of liberty. And that that's how you wake people up. I think that's really important. But agorism doesn't protect you from getting ruby ridged or wacoed. Unfortunately, it doesn't, you know, you really get that eye of Sauron on, on you actually, once you completely pull out of society. And so I don't know what the answer to that is. Some people say that it's martyrdom. I think that it's not the place of people who are new Christians, or people who are experimenting with Christianity, to call on other people to be a martyr. I just don't. That's not a mature Christian position. or or at least I'd say that's definitely not a position for Christians who are immature in their faith to be taking.
2: Yeah. I I don't think martyrism is something that you should seek out. You should be, I wouldn't say willing, you should recognize it's a possibility. Yeah. You know, like, like there, there is a point where um, obeying and following Christ might lead you into those things that Mm -hmm. happens. I mean, that even happens today in some of the most totalitarian parts of the world where following christ can can literally get you killed um so uh yeah that's you have to recognize that as a possibility but you shouldn't flippantly or like childishly almost like like seek it out or be like oh well you know the apostles died in the name of christ so like that should be what i'm aiming to do too it's like i don't know i mean that's you know, if, if God has that as a plan for you, I, I think it's going to happen. You don't have to seek it out. But if if God doesn't have that as a plan for you, I don't think that's the majority. I don't think God has that as a plan for the majority of Christians. I think that, um, you know, actually, God often rescues and, and preserves his his children to to keep them safe, even in the most hostile of circumstances. Actually, it's kind of funny. Christianity seems to be a weird religion that thrives under persecution. Yeah. Um which, you know, it's almost like Christianity has started to decline in the West because mm-hmm, that persecution right? widely went away and then people got complacent. And, uh, you know, also there's a little bit of entangle- entanglement with the the uh, the ruling and political mechanisms of, of society there as well. But that's a bit of a tangent. But, yeah, it's it's just there's something about it. And I like how you said it's kind of a self-contradictory and it's like a weird amalgamation amalgamation of a bunch of different things and mm-hmm. um you know I've invited Matt on my podcast and if he still wants to come on I I'd love to talk to him but it just it seems really hard to nail these things down because it's like it, it's almost like you're playing a game of um what is it whack-a-mole and you just yeah. literally like you know it's like ha huh, and then they just it's like an endlessly moving the goalposts from from one subject to the other but um yeah like, it's i don't incoherent. see how accurate, yeah um i I love agorism agorism is great for like you know uh have a garden do cryptocurrency engage in the black and and gray market i'm all for that uh but you know agorism isn't um by itself getting people out of jail for uh having weed on them or you know what i mean yeah yeah so what i mean it's like now i think ideally what you want is a division of labor right because to me I think, like, the strategy of, like, the Macy's Caucus, the 10th Amendment Center of, like, nullification, um, I think that pairs with agorism well, because you almost need a little bit of that counter-economy there to create the demand to make the nullification popular enough that, like, it becomes politically viable. Um, And, you know, the saying politics is downstream of culture, so that's true to a point, um, but, like, agorism can create the demand that makes the political mechanism work, but... You still need the, you need someone to actually go in there and hit the button to, you know, open the gates and let the people, you know, stop being jailed for, for cannabis possession. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Like it's,
3: it's fantastic, except that it only gets you so far and then you need something else to sort of push it right over the edge. Uh, Yeah. For people who don't want to engage in politics, I'm just totally fine. I'm totally fine with that. I'm not fine with the fighting and bickering between agorists and you know anarcho-capitalists like myself who are involved in politics I think if you really want to go there if you want to go that far and say you're completely removed from politics then you also remove yourself from dialogue about politics and interacting with politicians and so I consider that a contradiction and uh you know no one wants to be a hypocrite right so (laughs) yeah no I I agree and and it's it's
2: I think there's this weird confusion, and like it's it's almost a confusion that both camps make. Like the Christian anarchists mm-hmm. we were talking about before, and the post libs have this weird view of power and political power that seems really, I don't know, like made up. Yeah, like 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 so not real. I want to say not real. Like by like, and it's this weird binary thinking where it's like they view political like. Listen, I understand. Yeah, voting is violence. Politic politics in the state is violence, but like there are varying degrees of force and violence, right? Mm-hmm. It, like their argument, like to make an analogy, like like the you know like the kind of like the straw man argument that people, like I've literally actually, I was on a podcast last week and it was an anarchy versus minarchy discussion. And so the guy made an argument to me. He was like, yeah, well, you know, in anarchy, what happens when a five-year-old comes up and steals my apple and I shoot him in the face? And I was like, well, first of all, I'm a little concerned about, Your weird apple fetish but second of all um those things are just don't equate like yeah like he stole your apple which is a violation of property rights and he committed aggression but those two acts of aggression the stealing of an apple and the shooting the five-year-old in the face are not even in the same like planet so um yeah there are any political action is some measure of, has some measure of force or coercive power mm-hmm. involved at some level, but not, it's not literally true that every single political action is you trying to lord over somebody else, or you trying to claim power to, like, dominate or control. Um, there are ways to use politics in and to, to use legislation, to use the the mechanisms in ways where the only force that's being used is kind of being applied back towards the state.
3: Yeah. Okay. So at it. how about voting for a libertarian candidate who's not going to get elected? Right. You know, plenty of people didn't like Joe Jorgensen. I'm not going to say voting for her was violence, but right. yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it resulted in no violent action. The The worst violence you could say is that there were some tax dollars used to print the ballot and mail it out. That is it. That is as violent yeah. as it got. And, uh, you know, they're probably going to print those things out anyway. True. You know, voting for Joe Biden, I'd say that's kind of a violent thing. Voting down a property tax that is going to be foisted upon you against your will, I would say that that is not violent. That is self-defense.
2: Yeah. Or like in California when they, they like, vote against, they have, because you guys have a lot of, like, the referendum voting. And yes. I think you guys have voted against raising the, your income tax. You've yes. voted against... Um, Property tax is a big one. We have Prop prop
3: 13 that keeps property taxes from being raised. Like you get grandfathered in. And every year, every year, people try to attack it and find little loopholes and add additional. And we, thankfully, that's the one that we get voted down.
2: Yeah. But I was like, if you were an anarchist living in California, would you literally be like, "Eh, nah, I'll just not show up and vote? Because if I vote against taxes being raised, that's violence. Like, I don't know. It just seems like a really autistic argument i guess it is it um,
3: is i encourage people if if you're a non-voting anarchist i I don't lay it on thick like i'm not a hard sell but i'm like just turn in a ballot that's totally blank except for those few things voting against tax increases just do that and turn it in i don't care if you don't vote for a human being but for crying out loud like we we got to defend ourselves from being robbed by the state every year yeah And, and and like
2: not voting doesn't lead to less statism This is a weird fallacy that gets created too. It's like, they're like, Oh, well, if you vote, you're, you're contributing to your legitimizing and perpetuating the system. I was like, I actually think the state likes, um, the fact that there's not that many people voting because it's less people to manipulate. Yeah. Um, And if,
3: if we were the majority, then maybe that would make sense, but we're not, we're a very slim minority when it comes to voting. So.
2: Yeah. And it's like, I don't think the state would go away. I mean, it depends on why. If, if, If suddenly we had this weird uh, boost in libertarians and let's say – because already the majority doesn't vote. But if the majority of people – like we're talking 70 80% of the population wasn't voting because they were hardcore libertarians like us, well, then that might end the state. But it's not the not voting that would end the state. It would be the collective – movement of people going I don't recognize the state and they would probably just ignore it and the state would have no power right but a lot of people just don't vote because they just they don't care or they don't get around to it or whatever they're just too busy living their lives mm-hmm. um, there's so we we could decrease the number of voters by half and the state could triple in size so Absolutely. to me it's like it, it's just it, it's these weird autistic arguments where it's just like um, you know it's kind of like <laughs> there's this, this funny joke I've heard before. Um, where they're like eight minus four equals eight. And it's like, how do you get that? Like, well, you have eight, you take away the four, and you're just left with eight. Wait, 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 no, that's not how math works. And it's like, it's that kind of logic that I feel like a lot of Christian anarchists and the post-libertarian types are using, where it's like, it sounds to some people like, oh, huh, that's clever. But it's like, wait, no, actually think about it. It makes zero sense.
3: Right. It's It's a clever little thing you can say that has no bearing on reality, like in the way that you're saying it does. It's just a cute little phrase.
2: Yeah. Um, That's,
3: that's sort of the thing uh, where, you know, like the new, the new phrase lately is people who live in Ancapistan in their heads. And it's not to disrespect people who are anarchists or say that, you know, anarchy will literally never happen or that, that your beliefs don't matter. It's just that a lot of people don't seem to, they pretend that we don't live in the real world and we do live in the real world. And I'm very frustrated by the fact that I have to pay property taxes and that I might get pulled over by the cops for you know, driving with a tail light out or, or something up yeah. to that effect. But it is reality. And so we have to operate within reality. Like I don't want to unplug from reality because then I don't think that I'm affected you know, in, in really any respect.
2: Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, more like the power thing. So like the, 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 the post libertarians often talk like the only way it's like an analogy that Matt uses a lot is like, you're playing the game the wrong way, or you're using a tool in a way it's not designed for it. If you're going to play politics at all, it should be to seize power and to, and I don't even know what he means after that. I'm like, do you mean right. like, seize what? power and, and, and then what? Like, force liberty on people because i don't i don't even know what that looks like exactly it's it's very Um, south
3: park underpants gnomes (laughs) and a lot of this is based on which is funny it's very projection you know because that's that's what he accused me of even though i laid out step by step what it would look like if libertarians for example took local office you know and lowered uh local taxes and um nullified certain state and federal laws that's what it would look like what does it look like if you grab political power for the sake of power? So then you're in charge, right? And then you want to hold on to power and you, um, principles don't matter. So then you start making sacrifices. Okay. And that's how you become a normal politician and you don't achieve uh, political freedom or, you know, whatever you want to think of it as for your constituents and maybe not even yourself. Um, and what does it say? You know, for me, like political action needs to be based upon first principles. And if it's not, that's how you end up with populist movements that are reactionary. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of the post-libertarianism stuff sounds like to me. And those movements haven't been successful either. So I don't see how sacrificing your principles to try to do this, quote unquote, power grab, which has not been explained how that actually works, will actually end up getting you freer. Because, by the way, all those people who grab power, and and I think at one point, you know, he he had explained that people who grab power just work behind the scenes. No, that's not correct. They're all very involved in politics, usually at the local level, but they're very involved. They meet with city council members. They they donate tons of money behind the scenes, up front, whatever. They're extremely involved in politics. You don't just get to grab power and instantly rise to the top you have to engage
2: yeah and it's like grab power where because the only power that is like like a meaningful amount of power that the federal government is in washington we're not getting a libertarian elected at the federal level anytime soon if if ever it really like I, I think really never like i think if a libertarian wins in washington as slimy as it is they're not actually libertarian like they're worse they're like bill Weld or worse you know what I mean? They're libertarian in name, but what they've really become is just the GOP 2.0. Um, there, there's no way that a principal libertarian like Dave Smith or Spike Cohen or even even a Joe Jorgensen, there's no way that someone that principled gets that far and and wins. Or even, even at Congress, I don't think it's really, I mean, not through the LP. I mean, Ron Paul did it through the GOP, but even then, I think it was like a special set of circumstances that's like once in a lifetime and rand has done it and and massey you know to an extent but even then like do they have power not not really like they're the minority (laughs) yeah they're the Um, minority
3: but and some of this is some of this is a time preference thing which is also something that the power grab post-libertarian thing doesn't take into consideration or they'll say they do and then they just disregard everything we say about it which is like you don't rise to the top and get elected to congress through the libertarian party or really anything else in a couple of years you have to plant the seeds invest work your way up network with other people and if the libertarian party wanted to become that sort of political force which i hope to lead it to that that's like a tw- at least 20 years in the making yeah, we have absolutely. to work towards that you know you can't just jump in and say oh i have you know a bunch of money so so i'm going to win it didn't work for bloomberg the freaking mayor of New York, you know, and he pumped tons of money into his campaign. So that's not going to work for us either or no. a post-libertarian. Yeah.
2: And just to be clear to this comment, I don't think we were criticizing them as libertarians. And like, I think, I think Rand and Tom are, are good on a lot of issues. We're just oh, saying yeah. that they, they haven't been very effective in, in the political sense. I just wanted right. to, to, to yeah. clarify that. Um, I, totally I, mean, I had some agree. disagreements with, 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 I think Rand compromised a bit too much in trying to work with Trump personally mm-hmm but i still like rand i don't i don't have anything huge against him um i i, I will say um yeah i, I the, the federal government is where the main power is um and even then if you get gra- like you get like rand and, and and thomas you know they they got elected they can't do anything um and even if you got more of them in there and they tried to do something i just think the way washington politics work that power is really more controlled by the corporate elites, elites, and the special interest, right? So, um, I know Matt has said, "Well, th- that's where you have to go too. But I'm like, I don't know. I don't think trying okay. to lobby to uh, pedophiles and war criminals with my libertarian special interest group is really going to get me anywhere. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't see how that is a good strategy at all. Um, but then, but then, like, if you shift the conversation, because like the Mises Caucus and, and most. I think most sensible libertarians say mm-hmm. you only run national candidates to like get a platform and to get the message across. Yeah, you really want to win elections at the state and even more so the local county level. Um, that's where uh, a majority of great, you know, nullification and decentral- mm-hmm. decentralization can be achieved. Um, but then they're like, "Well, do it through the GOP because it has more power." I'm like, "Well, I, I don't." Really think that's true because I don't think when you get down to the state and even more so the county level, um, the power that's at uh, at work at the the federal level in in Washington D.C. really has as much of effect. I mean, they have some advantages in like ballot access, but um, other than that, especially at your local county level, it is not nearly as difficult to get elected under a libertarian banner as people think it is. Um, And I actually think that you're better off doing it under the libertarian banner, because if you do it through the GOP banner, the the local GOP is going to be trying to control what you do. Um, I mean, there might be isolated incidents. I know New Hampshire, uh, you know, like like uh, Jeremy Kaufman talks a lot about a lot of liberty Republicans out there do a lot of good. So I don't know. There might be exceptions to this, maybe. um, And your mileage may vary. But I think for the most part, it makes more sense to do it through. I think it makes more cuz the GOP has so much baggage to it, right? Yes. Um yes. so much baggage. Now, Granted the LP isn't exactly, you know, perfect, but like the baggage it, it has is just kind of being a joke, which is right. like, you know, any football like the um, the Cleveland Cavaliers were a joke and then LeBron came and they won a championship. Then they weren't a joke anymore. And it's like, you know what I mean? Like uh, a sports team can win a championship and go from mediocrity one year to greatness the next. And so just because you've been a failure in the past doesn't mean you can't succeed in the future. So that is not too hard to overcome. The GOP label I think is a lot harder to overcome because that baggage is kind of like slimy and, and, and gross and, Being a joke in a different way, because I think Republicans have become a joke because they don't stand for anything. You know what I mean? Like they they pretend to be for limited government, but then they just end up like, you know, hey, instead of going in the left lane and driving 80 miles an hour, let's get back in the right lane and coast at 60. It's like great, great, great victory, guys. (laughs) Yeah,
3: the conservatives haven't really conserved anything. Almost every single one of them voted to raise the national debt last year in an unprecedented amount, not a, right. not a little bit, you know, right. They, and, and I got to tell you at the County level from, from LA County, I had a call with the GOP executive director a few hours ago about what are we going to do about vaccine passports that were just passed today, by the way, in Los Angeles count, uh, the city yeah, of God. Los Angeles, they passed a law an ordinance at the local level mandating everyone get vaccinations and show proof of it in order to engage in commerce indoors. Grocery stores will be an exception. They'll carve out a few. So I am, have been calling the GOP all week. What are you going to do? Are you guys going to help me out? Are we going to work on this in a single issue coalition? And she's just like, I, credit, at least I got a call back. Well, I, I don't know. What do we do? That's where we're at.
2: Well, I will tell you a point, a lot of these local, uh, these local county affiliates of the GOP or even the Democratic Party, they're not, like, well-fine-tuned machines with lots of power. Yes. A lot of times, uh, you know, I, like, in my county, I feel like the our local LP county affiliate is way more organized and legitimate than our local GOP affiliate. Yep. And I feel like that's actually true in a lot of cases. Yep. So the, the, I think that the, the whole argument about, like, well, do the GOP because it has more power just doesn't hold when you actually, you know, put it up to scrutiny. It's, it's just yeah.
3: – People, people who are actually active in politics and attend city council meetings and see who passes what bill and, and, you know, who shows up, they'll tell you whether or not the GOP is active. And I'll tell you in Los Angeles, and we've got 11 million people in this county, 11 million people. GOP is a joke. We are more politically active and uh, better have a better reputation than the GOP. And that, that's, you know, it's not saying a lot.
2: No, but, but still, I mean, it, it, but it, it does. And you, you've done a lot out there um so don't sell yourself too short but the um but yeah i think it makes sense that it's not that hard to win at the local level because the democratic party and the republican party they're way more focused on washington and like you know as local as they really care about it's probably like governor races and Mm. and, and maybe the state houses so it's a little harder to win on the state level although it's not impossible it's just it's it's still a bit of an uphill battle but it's really not that hard to to win at the local level if you get organized and yeah the Mises caucus is really good at getting local county affiliates started and getting them active and um you know getting people running elections and getting them into those small positions even if it's just city council or something like that like that starts to make a difference um, gets gets people's names out there, gets them, you know, uh starting to have some political experience. And then um, you know, like it's really cool, like um, I'm going for a constable in my borough and to get on the ballot I have to go around and collect signatures. I wouldn't have to do that under the GOP banner. And mm. so I'd be on the ballot and really like no one would know who I am. Because I had to do it to the libertarian banner and collect signatures, I got to talk with a lot of people in my borough. And, and like, you know, of course, they're asked, like, oh, so why are you doing this? And it's like, well, because I'm run- running under minor party status in Pennsylvania, I have to get, you know, X amount of signatures to get on the ballot. And so that opens the conversation and the door up to be like, oh, hey, this guy's a libertarian. And so you have a lot of conversations with people who are like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know we had a local LP. And then you get them to come out and like our local, uh, county affiliate is is growing at an exponential rate right now i mean we had like three or four people um like a year and a half ago and like we we had a meeting last month that was like 40 people and then even more online that i mean it was like we were actually not prepared for it it was chaotic so many people showed up to our first in in in-person meeting so it's you know i think a lot of people especially right now with all the lockdowns and stuff like they see the republican party as a joke And that the Democratic Party doesn't care about personal liberties anymore. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that are really seriously ready to check the LP out and give them an honest shake if you're willing to just show up and be like, hey, we're here and we're going to get something done and have an actual plan to do something.
3: Yep. Well, we're putting in the work and that's what we got to do. It's the Libertarian Party has operated with with a high time preference. For the last, I don't know, since its existence, at least for the last 20 years. And so that's something that we've been changing, the Mises Caucus, at least, is we're actually putting in the work at the local level. And I got to tell you, as someone who lives in California, like, that's where you're able to stand down tyranny. There are yeah. counties that said we're not going to abide by the governor's orders. We're not going to ticket people. We're not going to harass businesses. It, it's the county and the cities that are standing up against people like Gavin Newsom. So that's that's really where you can make a huge difference.
2: Yeah, and you're not passing laws to that that are adding any kind of more power to the state yeah. or any violence. You're, it's political action that's entirely defensive, and actually, yeah. it's like you're cutting off the enforcement arm of the state to in- enforce their tyrannical laws. And when you when you do that, it's entirely in. Um, uh, in keeping with libertarian and anarchist philosophy, I think it, it um, you know, I, I think part of Matt's problem and a lot of these people is they just don't understand the strategy that the LP, like specifically what the Macy's Caucus wants to do in the LP. Like I feel like it's a complete, like they're just, oh, you guys are trying to do the same game as the GOP and and the 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 Democrat Party and do it through the LP, and you're just going to fail. It's like well, yeah, we were trying to play. Their game on their terms. Right. Yeah. We'll get, we'll get her at it. That's the history of the LP is the LP trying to play the statist game on the statist terms and getting their ass kicked over and over again. And so the Mises Caucus is like, hey, how about, what if we play a different game? And it's, it's not about, it is kind of about the the decentralization at the local level, but it's also about growing the movement.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. Which
2: is like the reason we look to Ron Paul is to be like, you know, what if we could do what ron paul did but do it from a party and instead of it being centered around one person it's centered around the actual philosophy yes um and you know to me like if you get that going it doesn't have to you know the, Revo- the ron paul revolution 2.0 doesn't have to end like the first revolution did i think right. it can can continue and you know the point to waking people up because in that debate which people, you know, definitely watch it when Lions of Liberty releases it, you know, Matt, keep pressing you, like like, pressing you, like wake them up for what? It's like, do not understand the relationship between like, if you have a culture of people who want Liberty, that will in effect naturally create a society and and a, a, a governing structure that is more Liberty minded. You can't, like like he's right and he's wrong on so many things because he'll talk about how most people don't want liberty. And it's like, yeah, that's the problem. That's what needs to be solved. Correct. If, and if you say that problem can't be solved, then you've just basically admitted defeat.
3: <laughs> but right. I don't and think I, and a, a power grab by an even smaller minority of the mor- minority doesn't solve that.
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's like the what we have to do is get more people to care about liberty and to realize – um, what the state is and, and what it represents. It's and- very
3: interesting, like the the relationship between this and and Christianity. You're supposed to be mm-hmm. the salt and light of the earth, and so right. they'll say, "Well, yes, that's correct in Christianity." And then I'm like, "Well, do you do it?" And they're like, "Well, well, no, but I'm doing this family thing." I'm like, "Ah, oh, but you don't do it," and then. Does that analogy carry over into politics? And the answer is usually not yes or no. The answer is to change the subject and talk about power or something else, you know, right? What is it? Do we witness to people or not? And right. it's, it's a very direct black and white question. Do we witness to people or not? And, and if you think or not, then OK, I'll let you have it. But don't tell me it's biblical based. Uh, does that make sense?
2: No, it makes perfect sense. And the, you kept you, you did a really good job in the debate of bringing that up and using that biblical imagery of, like, we're supposed to be a light to the world. We're supposed to be evangelizing people, not by seizing power. And, like, you know, because, you know, Jesus was rejected as Messiah because the Jews had an expectation that he right. was going to be a Messiah who seized power and took on the Romans. But Jesus kept on telling them, no, like, um my kingdom is not of this world and we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against uh, the forces of darkness and against principalities yep. and what, you know, what, it, the correlations here are so perfect because, you know, as Christians, what we preach to people is not what, what what Christians should be doing. is preaching to people, not like condemning them for their sin and be like, you need to change this and that, and your life is so messed up, but no, we need to be showing them, Hey, like you're lost in, in darkness and this is a light that you can run towards that will save you and not only run towards, but this, if you just say like, you know, I'm, I'm ready for this, that, that God, that Jesus will run towards you. And to me, that's what we as libertarians should be doing. We should be reaching out to people in our communities, in our country, in our society who are suffering under the darkness of statism and be offering them a light to be like, listen, you're struggling. You're like, you, you see all this crap around you. Like we have the answers, we 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 have the proper worldview that explains what is going on, and you can join us. We can join together, and we can overcome this. You know what I mean? Like to me, like mm-hmm. we should be inspiring people to 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 fight to fight against you know principality. Like the Bible talks about, we shouldn't be telling people go retreat from the world and go you know find your little kingdom to rule over and let the world fall apart into darkness I mean like I mean uh, unless you're and uh, 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 like I'm, I'm coming I'm probably coming across really like critical and judgmental of that but like sometimes he comes across like this a little bit like a false prophet of sorts where he's just like oh well the end's coming and I know exactly you know we don't have much time and it's kind of like this alarmist talk too and I'm just like I don't know like the state probably will collapse at some point but even then like the states usually collapse and just build back up in a different way and I don't know, like the state is really good at you know, like especially like the Amer like, you know, some states go bankrupt and it's a big deal for them. But when America has this giant empire that it has and this like, you know, the hands around the throat of so many countries with how many military bases we have, I don't know if there is actually a scenario where uh you know, there's any kind of economic collapse of major significance in terms of the political power that America holds. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like, I mean, it's possible. I don't know. Like, I, I just, I don't know, but I'm not willing to say, oh, the collapse is inevitable. And even if it is, it, it could be 30 years in the future. It could be 100 years in the future. I, I, I don't know.
3: Okay, let's, let's unpack some of this. So, the three things that come to mind are lobbying ushering in the kingdom of God in the remnant. So mm. I don't have a problem when when it comes to power, political power, however you want to interpret that. I don't have a problem with lobbying. Uh, that's how politics work. It's really, it's Machiavellianism, for example, that term is way abused and, and misused. Lobbying is okay as long as you're not compromising your morals. Pressuring people to vote a certain way Donating to campaigns, you know, making your voice known, withholding resources, pitting enemies against each other—these are things that happen in politics. Lying and cheating and stealing; those are the things you want to avoid. So, if you could right. separate that, you know, then you can sort of move forward in the political framework without being a scumbag or an immoral person. Uh, and then, as far as retreating and worrying about collapse what do you want to do? Like, like in Isaiah, what what was God telling Isaiah? He was saying, you're going to go out and you're going to preach and you're going to do it and people are going to reject you and they're going to mock you. And, and, you know, Isaiah's like, well, you know, what's the point? And God's like, because there's a bunch of other people out there who are kind of scattered and barely hanging on. And those are the ones who are really going to be ready to receive your message. And they know that everybody else is morally bankrupt, you know? And when everything burns down and is destroyed, it's the rest of you who are going to rebuild.
1: Right. So
3: when, you know, like that's ushering in the kingdom of God, whatever yeah. you want to call it. And that's also putting up that framework that, that post-libertarians seem to be so worried about when it comes to a power vacuum. Like I know. I don't want to live in a place that's overtaken by morally bankrupt psychopaths either. And that's why we should build our own infrastructure right? Like that yeah. is our job is we are building our own, we're making our own parachute.
2: Yeah. And I think the LP is a better vehicle for that than the GOP because absolutely, a lot of people in the GOP don't really have the same goals as us. Whereas the LP, you know, beyond just the political utility of, of, of it, it's a great place to network and meet more people. And like, you know, uh, you're in the same, you know, discord signal chats and all that. Like, A lot of our people are constantly talking about this stuff and and in their in their local their local counties and states and even nationally, they're talking about agorism. They're talking about ways to to build infrastructure and to prepare for different things like we're creating not just a political movement, but a it is a revolution and it's taking a life and a culture of its own of people that like you know, will be able to be that remnant and rebuild if a collapse does happen. Whereas if everyone's just isolated from each other, that's a lot harder to do. Um, I feel like Matt thinks that we're supposed to be Noah, but really like, we're not supposed to be Noah. We're not supposed no. to just be building. And even Noah saved some people, right? Or saved, mm-hmm. you know, animals and stuff, but we're not supposed to be Noah. I don't think that that's the role of Christians anymore. I think we are supposed to be like Isaiah. We're supposed to be, uh, like the apostles, you know, and even if you don't believe in God and stuff, if you're secular or agnostic, listening to this, just just look at it metaphorically. Just just look at the you know, the the archetypes that are being spoken about here. And I think you can still hear what we're talking about and and yeah. and realize the the wisdom and the significance of it, which is like, you know, a movement that's built on, isol- like, if you're building a movement to set people free, but it's built on things that aren't is isn't a culture of freedom it's just not going to work if you build if you're trying to get to liberty by building a culture of protectionism and isolationism that's just a house of cards you have to build a culture of liberty on top of principles that are actually compatible with liberty
3: yep god has sense. not commanded us to build another ark no. and i i you know i get the sentiment I, I see it on facebook sometimes or twitter build an ark build the ark i get Right. That is not God's command. Um, nope. So I don't want to tell people don't hedge your bets, but don't put all of your eggs in that basket.
2: Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Um, so, you know, for those who are listening, you know, maybe there's some people who are, you know, curious about getting involved in the LP or they're in the LP, but they just haven't heard. I wanted to give you a chance here to talk at the end, just about your run for uh, chair in the LNC and just talk about, um. You know the things that, not just in the Macy's caucus, but just in general. If you if you are elected as chair at the next convention, uh, what you want to do in the LP and where you see the LP going over the next you know maybe five to ten years, if you're you know able to get in and uh, and affect the change and and um uh you know bring the policies into effect that you want to bring.
3: Yeah, I think there are two things that would probably really speak to your audience, and one is that I want to make the Libertarian Party more libertarian and a welcoming place to people who are solid libertarians, fans of Ron Paul, so on and so forth. And another group of people that the LP has not been very welcoming to is Christians.
1: Hmm.
3: We are generally as a group very welcoming to atheists, pagans, you know, libertines, and say we scream, scream tolerance in people's faces, but we're not very welcoming to Christians. And I think that's wrong. And I would like to see the Libertarian Party culture say, hey, we appreciate Christian Libertarians. And as long as you are not trying to, you know, exercise um, moral judgment over everyone else in an aggressive way, like we want you in the party. So that's something I'm really committed to doing. I think that that is really important. And I think that we definitely need to make the Libertarian Party a more welcoming place to Christian Libertarians. And we got to improve that messaging, right? So that's, that's something I'm really committed to. We don't need any more watered down social justice messaging. You can be compassionate and care about people without talking about voluntary lockdowns and how you should have private mask mandates. Are you actively
2: think... anti-muddied down message, Angela?
3: I'm actively anti-muddied down messaging, which you <laughs> will know if you have listened to me on public comment on uh, city council. And that, that's something else I'd like to push is trying to explain to people how to actually be effective hmm. when they're doing local politics. I've, I've been on public comment for L.A. City Council three times in the last week, dropping the Libertarian Party of Los Angeles County's website and my phone number and telling people to contact me if they oppose what's going on locally. I have had more phone calls and emails than I can count. Hmm. Um, you got to lead by example, don't vote in anyone who is not willing to lead by example and who's not willing to do the groundwork and train other leaders. And that's something that is like very important to me. It's not dictate and just tell everybody to do things and it's not do everything yourself. It gets a lead by example and build a community. That's what I want to do. It's not we're not building an arc. We're building a community.
2: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree with that. Um, you know, what would you say, you know, there's there's different views on what the role of the chair is um, in libertarian circles. Like there's some people that seem to push like a strong chair model that the chair is kind of like, I don't know, like like the voice. And then there's some mm-hmm. people that say like, you know, they'll be like, uh, well, I'm just the chair. I'm just the facilitator. I mean, what, what do you think, do you think that the role of the chair is to be more of kind of like a, you know, not a dictator, but sort of like a a person that sets the pace and a direction, so to yeah. speak. And is that what you would seek to do?
3: So the chair is a leader. You're a leader. You're an administrator, and in my opinion, you are also the mouthpiece of the party because we don't have um, the same number of candidates and elected officials that other parties do. So the chair plays a more important role. But that does not mean that the chair should be making all the decisions. The chair should not decide a bunch of things unilaterally. The chair should keep all of the officers and executive committee members in the loop and do group decision making and the chair also sets the tone for the national party's culture i think that's really important and so you know we've seen in the past that the that former chairs have been like openly hostile to other libertarians and then the most recent chair who resigned uh, did not keep his officers in the loop. And there was just like a lot of fighting and secrecy and that that's not healthy for the culture. So, well, I'd be making dictatorial decisions behind closed doors and not telling anyone. No, but I will be doing interviews and speaking out a lot about libertarianism. And I'll be encouraging other people to do the same and trying to change the culture in the LP.
2: Um, one of the things you've talked about, I think, is that um, there's not enough resources, I guess, for uh, for candidates. That's um, correct, yeah. What, what would you do, um, is, is that something where you think we need more, more donors, or is it more like a, there's things that need to be changed in, in the delivery mechanism? Like, wh- what are your ideas there to, to help uh, support candidates more as far as, like, getting the resources that they need to be successful?
3: So that's complex. One of the problems is that the messaging is so bad, we don't get as many new members as we should, and that means we also mm-hmm. don't get as many new donors. So you fix the messaging and that's going to make a lot of other things much easier, and then there are state parties who don't have a lot of faith in the National Party. And for those of you who are listening and you're not very involved in libertarian politics, you have a national party, you have 50 state parties and you have county parties in almost every state party so it all sort of is, is related, but it's, but it's separate. And the, and the state and the county parties don't always have a lot of faith in national because they don't like the messaging because they don't like what happened with the New Hampshire debacle and the CRM. So healing that is going to make it so that the resources that we have at the national level for candidates will be used and more readily available because right now state parties don't even care. Like they don't, they don't want the resources and that's not, you know, that's not a healthy relationship. We all need to be able to work together and lean on each other.
2: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking a little bit about of inner party politics stuff and, you know, half my audience might be a little bit um, yeah. oblivious to it, but um, but for those who are aware of it, I mean, what are your thoughts on like the the fractioning that you know, is is going on in the party, you know, different factions warring over each other. I mean, libertarian Twitter is like, you know, World War three. Sometimes it just, you know, you, you, I log onto Twitter and like my notifications will be at like 50. And I was like, Oh God, like, you know, what's, you know, you know, like brace for impact. What's going on today? Um, You know, I can't tell you how many times I, I think, I think I've been called a Nazi at least 10 times in the past week, you know, if I, mm. if I was to keep count, um, yeah. you know, and then on the flip side, there's even people in my own camp sometimes who I think, you know, like as a Christian, I, I I probably have a little bit different view than other people in the Mises caucus and the LP do. Because, like, when people are nasty to me, I do try to, for the most part, turn the other cheek. Um, And sometimes, like, when other people don't do that, I'll get a little frustrated because I'm just like, hey, let's just ignore these people if they're being shitty to us. But, you know, not everyone's going to do what I want them to right. do you know, uh, which, you know, as a libertarian, like I have to, I have to accept that, of course. Um, but, you know, I mean, what do you think you could do, you know, uh, once elected chair to help foster maybe, you know, I mean, there's bad actors that I think just have to be not even removed. I think they'll just leave. Um, they're self-selected. Selected. Yeah. yeah. But, but for leaving. the other people that, you know, maybe they're not going to leave, but maybe they feel scorned and they're just, you know, people are are a little skeptical of of you know a, a new regime taking over you know what do you think we can do you know all of us i like, like i'm talking both like what can you do like what are your plans to do but also what can we as individuals who were in the mises caucus and the lp what can we do to help um you know make this party less about you know focus less on the infighting and and more on you know hey like we don't have to agree on everything but on the stuff we do agree on let's agree to work well together on that and then just freely disassociate on the things that maybe we have different views on.
3: Well, you put in the work. If you're focused on putting in the work, then you're not focused on sniping at each other on social media. By the way, I think libertarian Twitter is about a hundred times better than libertarian Facebook. Libertarian Facebook is like the, the delegate groups and things like that. It is incredibly toxic and just a social club and really nasty. And I don't think it's actually a reflection of the libertarian community. It's only a reflection of the party, which is just the priorities are completely wrong. The libertarian party is very confused about where it fits in the liberty movement. They think that they're the foundation and they're not. They're just a little piece. Uh, The foundation is libertarians. And there's a lot more of them outside of the party right now, sadly, than inside of the party. So I think we need to focus on doing the work and not concern ourselves within fighting and it's still going to happen to a certain degree and that's okay we don't have control over everything and we never will it's just human nature and there are going to be people who self-select out they're going to scream and they're going to cry and they're going to throw a temper tantrum and they're going to leave the party and that is okay and i wish them the best in life and i will be way too busy doing important (laughs) things to antagonize them on social media and when they do work with them
2: once they join the green party
3: yeah, that's fine. Go and do your thing and yeah. have enjoy your voluntary mask mandates and staying at home and locking down. Like Right. Best of luck in your life. You can pray for these people. You can love them like God yeah. from a distance, you know? Right. Just uh um, Yeah, it's social distance close. loving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I don't know, you know, how far away God is. We say he's in the room, but
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I have to think of it in a little bit of a more uh, pedestrian juvenile, you know, million miles away kind, of, kind right. of outlook when it when it comes to people who are openly calling for me to die or saying they hate me and that oh, I'm a nazi. God. You know, okay, well, you know, have a nice life. Well, Outside like, of the it's, party.
2: It's really hard. Like I struggle. Like I've had people tell me uh you're subhuman and turn your kids into the state because anything raised by you will be will not be human. It's yeah. God. Like, What's the, like, I was just like, you know, I, I definitely yeah. fail to come up with Christ-like responses to those Totally.
3: And, and I'm not, <laughs> and I am definitely not the best example of how Christians should live. And, you know, that's on me. None of us we're, are perfect.
2: Yeah, none of us are perfect. We none all, of us are perfect, fall but, short.
3: but yeah. you know, we, we're going to do the best that we can, right, as human beings. And uh, I don't usually put myself out there on all the Christian podcasts because my personal life is you know, not in, you know, it's not the greatest example, but the, the reality is this is the world we're living in. And unfortunately, I am one of the better examples of libertarianism right now from a Christian perspective. So I would challenge other people, like you could probably do a lot better than me, right? So if you're thinking out there like, oh, I could do better, please do. Please yeah. be that, please be that right. public person. Well, even like with the Macy's
2: caucus, when people complain we're ruining the party and we're not going to get anything done, it's like, okay, well, go show us how it's done. Like if you outcompete us and you win, you get liberty achieved, I'm not going to complain. Competition is
3: healthy. Competition is healthy and it's natural. I hate to break it to all of the people that hate capitalism.
2: Competition
3: (laughs) and hierarchies are natural. We see them in nature. We see them in parks and human relationships. And uh, so we're competing right now. We are, we are competing for the party. We are having a, you know, a battleground fight or we're fighting in the battleground of ideas. Like that's just, that's where we're at. Um, I would love it much more if people kept it, you know, a little more civil between people that we're supposed to be working with, but we'll see.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, I I just tell people like, you have to learn to just realize that there's going to be people that, you guys don't have exactly the same goals, same personalities. Some people they like to edge lord and shitpost on Twitter. If that offends you, just ignore it. Yes. You know what I mean? Like that's infinitely better than spending all your time complaining about
3: it. Aren't there, and like, there are I, so many yeah. worse things to be outraged over? Yeah. You're out people are outraged, outraged over jokes that I make on social media, but they're not outraged about mandatory vaccination.
2: Yeah. What? Or
3: lockdowns and small businesses destroyed and people committing suicide and churches being closed for a year. Those are the things to be outraged over, not jokes.
2: Yeah. Pastors have been arrested and and Christians arrested in their churches for just like, you know, wanting just showing up. I mean, parents arrested for taking their kids to the parks, people arrested for driving. I mean, it's it's absolutely disgusting. Um, and, you know, even just the generic stuff like the war on drugs and the wars. I mean, I say generic because they're just brought up a lot, but they're not generic. They're still, you know, horrible human rights violations that are happening on a daily basis. So it's like, right. you know, I mean, we just kind of have a little bit of perspective here. Yeah, um, and,
3: and for people <laughs> listening who don't understand, really, that might not have made much sense. But so there's a social justice faction within the Libertarian Party that cares a lot about virtue signaling to the left and they care about it much more than libertarian principles and certainly much more than christian principles because they're not doing it from a christian perspective either that's a whole nother episode though i would love to do a deep dive on the problems with progressivism and how it's encroached upon christianity
2: oh yeah that's definitely a subject that could be a whole different podcast. Yeah. Um, the, the last point I wanted to make, this is something I've been saying lately. I was um, on my friend James's podcast, Blackbird, um, and, and we, we made this point. And I wanted to run it by you, get your thoughts on it. I feel like another parallel here, because like, there's, there's things in Christianity I criticize a lot, too, as a Christian anarchist. And I feel like there's a problem of institutionalism. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it's affecting both the Libertarian Party and the Christian, uh, like the the Christian church, like the community. And the problem is there's too many people that have built these institutions as if the people should serve the institutions, when really the institutions should exist to serve the people. The church should exist um, to, you know, like what Christ taught was that to be a leader is to be a servant. Jesus washed his apostles' feet as a demonstration of this. Yes. And I feel like there's too many libertarians who feel like we exist to serve the party. And it's about advancing the yes. party. But it's just like blindly win elections and just it's all about like what's good for the party. And I'm like, no, the party is a tool that should serve the movement. It should serve liberty. Um, and to the me, party. that just makes intuitive sense. But I don't, for some reason, a lot of people just don't seem to make that connection.
3: It's, you know, ironically, that's that's much more Machiavellian. The party should be based on first principles, and it should be purpose-driven. And so should the church. There are some interesting parallels here, and it's something that I was really turned off by when I moved to LA as a teenager. I found that every church that my family visited was like, this is how God can fix your life in five easy steps. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, oh, and then we would visit another one. And it was like object oh. lessons for eight-year-olds. And it was every church I attended and, and they're, and they're all over in exactly 45 minutes or one hour. And they have the same like cookie cutter in Joel Osteen, uh, vibe of a worship service. And I don't hate drums, but I like heavy metal, but it starts to all sound like eerily similar. It's, it's the purpose driven, uh, or I'm sorry. I think it's called purpose driven church, but it's not purpose driven. It's, uh, it's, commercial and I love capitalism but that's not the point of the church but the libertarian party behaves the same way they are not yeah. purpose driven anymore they will say that they are the party of principle but they are the party of um perpetually failing at elections because some for some reason that's what we're supposed to do i don't <laughs> understand it
2: right and if you would all criticize that you're spitting in the faces and 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 demonizing and brutally attacking people if you would all criticize that hey libertarian party hasn't actually done anything over the past oh, you know gosh. 40 years you know these people and they are,
3: haven't you know yeah. and it, and yeah. it's been because it's been irresponsibly managed it's a wonderful tool and I would like to use that tool in a much better way and I would also like to do that in a principled way because what the heck is the point of this what the heck is yeah. the point just go join the GOP Or the Democratic Party, or whatever. If all you want is just political success by any means necessary, and I wish you the best of luck. I don't even say it like in an angry way. It's just this isn't for you. It's for someone else. Yeah,
2: I mean, I feel like there's I feel there's too many people that to like their version of libertarianism is that like really uh, cringy. Like it's like we're socially conservative and fiscally. Oh, sorry socially liberal and fiscally conservative or it's like it, 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 to, to me it's just there's too many people that's like you're not a libertarian you're just you're either a democrat that likes guns or a republican who smokes weed right um and it, we're and, not and,
3: all we're that doesn't even describe us all not everyone no. is socially con- um socially liberal sorry no you know
2: no, i i lean more socially conservative now i don't want the government to be involved in pushing any of my social views on anyone else but like um right you know someone earlier on twitter today was like we need to normalize polyamorous relationships and i was like no uh, i don't and i was no. like i mean i was like you're free to do it i don't care if you do it but i'm not going to go out there and promote it and normalize it because i actually don't it's think it's not, a good my, idea.
3: it's not my prerogative <laughs> like if other people yeah. want to do that they can do it it's fine personally i don't think it's a good idea it's yeah. not the hill i'm gonna die on though it's no. just like okay whatever you know like i'm there's a lot of things I'm not into and that's one of them.
2: Yeah, and it's like you're not less libertarian if you have different social views than other liber- libertarians. Like I wouldn't call someone not libertarian because they um you know they're libertarian and they live a socially progressive like secular atheist lifestyle. It's like okay, you're still a libertarian. Yep. And I'm also still a libertarian if like I'm a Christian who wants to promote more traditional like views on marriage and sex. It's like I don't know, like you know, I'm I'm not anti LGBT, but I also don't think that, you know, I think some parts of that movement are overly celebratory or in this kind of right. weird cult celebration of certain aspects of that, that like, it's not my thing. Now, if it's your thing, go ahead. If you're not hurting anybody, I don't care. But calling me a bigot or a fascist because I don't have the same exact worldview as you just you know, this isn't what libertarianism should be about, and this isn't what we should be focused on.
3: It's, uh, we should not be spending so much energy glorifying sexual preferences. And a good indicator of of the fact that it's tilted, you know, it's slanted in one direction more than the other is, can we get an article on lp.org celebrating some aspect of conservative Christian lifestyle? You know what the answer to that is? Like, I'm almost yeah. laughing, even like <laughs> formulating the sentence and no. I'm not super conservative. I kind of LARP as a social conservative. I'm more of a social moderate, you know, like that's just, you know, whatever. That's, that's the world that I've made for myself, whether I like it or not. Here I am. Right. Even that though, even that would trigger some people at the national oh, yeah. party. Oh, you just said oh, yeah. you're a social moderate. Yeah. Sorry. Like I'm in my thirties and I'm divorced with two cats. This is my world, you know? Well, it's uh, the, and, and it's um, the
2: problem. It's the problem with left-leaning thinking, and there's problems with right-leaning thinking too. Don't get me wrong, but the problem with left-leaning progressive mindsets is that they just keep getting more and more progressive. And so, like someone who's progressive now will be deemed a conservative in ten yes, years. Totally. So it's like it, it's like they just and they end up getting more and more like this small hyper minority, but they get louder somehow. So it's just. <laughs> I don't know it's just silly. Well, um we're coming up to the close here. Um uh but yeah, I think we touched everything we wanted to touch on um uh give your, you know, uh, Twitter handles and and plugs and stuff that you want to give for those who want to come check you out more and see what you're doing.
3: Yeah, I would love to hear from people if they're interested in the Libertarian Party, you can contact me at angelamacardle.com. I should have an updated schedule of places that I'm going to be visiting posted within the next couple of days. You can find out about all the crazy vaccine passport stuff. Support me on Patreon if you so choose. I spent a lot of money on a special performance art project today, which will be interesting. And you can find me on Twitter at Angela for LNC Chair, but I'm I'm on all the social media, so you can find me on any of it.
2: Cool, awesome. Well, thanks, Angela, for uh, coming on. I think we, uh, it was a fantastic conversation, and um, you know, I, I I hope it encourages some Christians who are libertarians but on the fence about the L.P. to at least consider looking at it. You know, if it's not your thing, hey nope no worries no problem they're not going to hold it against you if party politics is not your cup of tea it's not everybody's cup of tea but um at the very least maybe um you know throw us a vote if you're happen to be free on election day um or if it does interest you definitely you know check out angela stuff check out the macy's caucus um you know i think you'll find a lot of like minded people who um want to use the political uh sphere not to rule and lord over people but to actually you know set people free and resist the state to at least, you know, um, to at least, you know, be a voice, you know, that that says no, right? And I think that's important to I think that our role right now is to at least be collectivizing in some manner and vocally saying no to all this crap that the state keeps pushing on us. So um, yeah, that's all I got, you know, uh, subscribe, give a like if you can to the podcast, I'd appreciate it. Other than that, thanks again, Angela, for coming on. And thanks for those of you for.